0: consequence podcast network a lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing i'm dr mike host of going there
1: it was the first song where i wrote about how i felt like my depression was killing me and i didn't want it
0: Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Bartee Strange.
2: There was something there that was so
0: raw where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by Sound Mind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey everybody, I'm Butch Vig, music producer and drummer of Garbage, and you're listening to The Story Behind the Song on Consequence.
0: Welcome listeners to The Story Behind the Song. I'm your host, Peter Choddy of Creative Media. And in this episode, I explore the story behind one of the greatest and most iconic rock songs of all time, course, that's Nirvana's classic grunge anthem, Smells Like Teen Spirit, a record that changed the shape of music in 1991 when it blasted onto the scene in a post-New Wave music world that was still trying to find its footing. And the man behind it all in that studio was legendary producer Butch Vig. Smells Like Teen Spirit transformed Nirvana, of course, but it also transformed Vig. He went on to produce some of Smashing Pumpkins and Sonic Youth's most iconic albums, not to mention albums and songs ranging from Green Day and Muse to Wayne Newton. And oh yes, in his spare time, he started the great band Garbage, collecting an endless string of hits. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with music producer and garbage collector Butch Vig.
2: Butch, good to see you. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm having my third cup of coffee.
0: I'm right there with you. (laughs) So much to say about what you've done, obviously with Garbage, working with Shirley Manson and the band, and Shirley was a guest of mine just recently on this podcast series, so that was fun. So we went through the journey of the band and some of the songs there. We discussed Only Happy When It Rains, and it was great. And then Silver Sun Pickups were on as a guest of mine, and they were singing your praises because obviously you produced their great latest album, Physical Thrills, and just one special part of that album that I just loved, the way that songs number one and two kind of bled into each other. I thought that was really, really just so nice.
2: Yeah, cool. Thanks for saying that. That was a little tricky doing that, but we wanted the record to feel like it had a flow to it. And that's one of the things that the band and I discussed. So when you make those segues, it's not always easy because you write the song separately and then you have yeah. to figure out a way to connect them. But that's part of what's fun about working in the studio, trying to figure those things out.
0: Yeah, no, it's so great too because it's a full album listen, you know, and it's it's a full experience. I think a lot of people are beginning to come back to some of that. It's kind of like the vinyl resurgence. It's the full album, full sit down experience. So you hear the whole story of it all. And then, of course, You've produced so many others, Smashing Pumpkins, their classic album, Gish, Sonic Youth, Green Day, Muse. I'm wearing my Nirvana today, but I'm also wearing my my Muse. All right. Very in cool. homage to you and all the work that you've done, Foo Fighters, they, it, on and on. But let's dig right into Smells Like Teen Spirit and your journey to get to the production of that. So what had you produced prior to that time? And And just take us through how you got to that point where you were connected with the band and entered the studio.
2: Well, going way back, the guitarist Steve Marker and Garbage and myself started a recording studio called Smart Studios in Madison in like 1984, 85. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of punk bands on the local scene. And so we started recording bands like Mecht Mench and Tar Babies and the Appliances. And, uh, And uh, there was a band called Killdozer Mm -hmm. that I produced three or four albums for. They were a god-awful sound, sort of like falling down the stairs in slow motion when you've had too many beers. But it caught the attention of a lot of bands, particularly Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins. That's why he called me, because he heard the Killdozer records. And also Sub Pop called, because they liked the sound of those Killdozer records. And so I started doing some records for Sub Pop. Nirvana at the time was signed to sub pop and one day Jonathan the the head there called me and said hey Butch we want you to produce this band Nirvana they could be as big as the Beatles and I sort of laughed who's gonna say that what a punk band's never gonna be as big as the Beatles anyway since there wasn't any internet really functioning then he sent me uh uh, some vinyl of their first record Bleach and I listened to it and it was good I was kind of unimpressed I thought their record was kind of one-dimensional and sort of in its approach But there was one song on there about a girl, which to me was a brilliant pop song and sounded like Lennon McCartney style songwriting. And I just fell in love with that song. I told Jonathan if they were coming, you know, anywhere in the Midwest on tour, they should come by and record it smart. And they were coming through to do like a a six week run through the U.S. and a lot of the shows in the Midwest. So we scheduled a week between some shows to record it smart. And that was the first time I met the Bam. So they came on like a Sunday uh, showed up like it knew, and they were really scruffy. This is when Chad was drumming for him too. This is before Dave Grohl had joined the band. And we came they came in and started setting up and immediately I was taken about how friendly they were, especially Chris, Nova, was like he was just super charming and funny. And Kurt was really uh, quite affable and when and witty. But as soon as we started recording that day, I, that's the first time I realized that Kurt would have these intense mood swings. Like a, It's like a black cloud would come over him and a light switch would go off and he would just completely shut down. The first song we were recording, I thought he didn't like something or his mix was bad. And I asked Chris, you know, what's going on? And he pulled me aside and said, it's okay. If Kurt gets in these moods. You just have to let him be. He'll snap out of it. So I went in and I tinkered myself, you know, tinkered on the drum kit at tuning and things and with the amp. And then it, like uh, 45 minutes later, Kurt picked up his guitar and said, let's go. And we recorded Sunday through uh, Wednesday or Thursday, I think, what was ostensibly going to be an album for Sub Pop. And I think we got six or seven tracks done. And then they played a show in Madison on that Thursday night. And uh, it was at this small club downstairs in an Italian, like a pizza joint or maybe 75 people in the pizza parlor. And they were amazing. But Kurt sang so hard, he blew his voice out. Yeah. So we came in the next day, and he couldn't sing. So I think I did a couple rough mixes. And they were supposed to stay there till Saturday and leave on Sunday. And they just drove on Saturday to go to the next gig or whatever, because he couldn't sing and uh, wanted to rest his voice. So we scheduled time for them to come back about two months later, or maybe two and a half months later, to finish the album. I rough mixed all the songs. I sent them to the band, and I sent them to Sub Pop, and Sub Pop loved them. They were totally excited about it. And then I didn't hear anything. About two months later, I found out the band had taken the cassette I gave them with the rough mixes and dubbed 100 copies and gave them to all their friends. (laughs) So they basically bootlegged themselves, and then all their friends made copies, and pretty soon everybody had this underground tape of their Nirvana sessions at SMART. Needless to say, I was bummed about that, and Sub Pop was very bummed about it, but that's what led to uh, all the major labels discovering them, and then they got into a bidding war and eventually signed with Geffen Records.
0: Pretty amazing how that happened, and then kind of the rest is history. It all blew up. Um, When you are thinking about working with a band, and in that case as an example, do you spend time with them before you say yes I'm gonna produce your album and we're going to, then I'm gonna to commit to going in the studio with you and spend weeks and weeks, maybe sometimes months. How does how did it work in this particular case with Curtin and, and the band?
2: Well, you hit the nail on the head. For a long time now, if I'm gonna produce a band or an artist, the first thing I do is is get a sense of what their vision is and who they are as people. I kind of have a rule: no vibe crushers. If someone's going to be difficult or hard to work with for for whatever reason there's probably a good chance i'm not going to take on that project but back when i did nirvana and a lot of those bands in like the late 80s early 90s basically a band would book time with me and, and that was it i would i would just say yes put it in the calendar and do it there was no money for pre-production there yeah. was no time to hang out and get to know each other and listen to demos and discuss what was going on bands would show up at the door open up we would load in their gear and we'd be recording like two hours later and that's what we did every day every week for you know a good probably about a good eight or nine years it's kind of formative in terms of how I learned how to be an engineer and producer because you don't have time to really think you just have to sort of react and and go with your gut instinct as quickly as you can. I like to take my time getting sounds and working on getting parts down, writing and, and mixing the whole process. But uh, I think that those years were very helpful for me uh, in learning how to be a, a producer. Cause I can, when I need to work incredibly fast.
0: When did you first get the songs? Was it, was I assume that would be prior to entering into the studio with them to, to produce them. And, What did you think of them when you first heard them? Did you feel differently about them when you heard these particular tracks? And did Smells Like Teen Spirit stand out to you at that point?
2: Well, they hadn't written Teen Spirit then. Chad was still in the band. I knew that Kurt's songwriting had progressed a lot because the songs that we recorded for those smart sessions, like In Bloom was one of them, which is just a fantastic song and a great melody over a chord structure. Stay Away was on there. I think it might have been called Pay to Play. I had never heard them before. Kurt would say, here's a song called In Bloom, and they recorded it, you know, and then we would overdub a few guitars and vocals, and I'd get a rough mix, and and then we'd get ready to move on to the next song. But I knew that he, he was trying to grow as a songwriter, and it was during those early smart sessions that, you know, we would talk at lunch break or dinner break and stuff. That's when I discovered he was a huge Beatles fan, and as much as he admired John Lennon's aesthetic, he really admired Paul McCartney's melodic songwriting, his melodic sensibility. And and so I kind of filed that away as a reference point that I would use later on when we recorded Nevermind.
0: Take us through the journey of this particular song. Smells Like Teen Spirit. And when it presented itself, how it presented itself, what your initial reaction was and and how you went about creating the sound that you felt would optimize the impact of this, of that great song?
2: Well, it's funny. The band had called me and said, Hey, Butch, we got signed to Geffen records. Are you interested in in producing? I said, yes, of course I am. And then I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. And uh, at that time I was finishing up Gish with, The Smashing Pumpkins, we recorded that at Smart Studios. We were just in the process of mixing it. And Billy Corgan kept saying, are you going to work with Nirvana or not? And I said, well, (laughs) I think so, but I haven't heard anything. So I I actually don't know. And it was just a a short, like a couple of weeks or so after I finished Gish. Geffen wanted a big name producer, someone who had a track record. Because I had no track record for major labels. It was all indie labels I'd been producing for. And then Chris called at the 11th hour and said, well, we decided we want you. We don't like any of those other big wig producers we met. So we want you to do it. This is about a week before we were scheduled to go in the studio. Chris said, I'll send you a cassette of our rehearsal. And a couple of days later, a cassette showed up. <laughs> so I put it in my, in my cassette player in the car, I put it on and it was Kurt. And he said, Hey, Butch, we've got a new drummer. His name is Dave Grohl. He's the best drummer in the world. And I hear him go, Hey, Butch. And then i two, said, one, two, three, four. And they kicked into teen spirit on the boombox, And as soon as they kicked in, it was so distorted because they recorded it on those boom box with the built in microphones. Yeah. It sounded like shit, but even though it was a wall of fuzzy distortion, I could hear the song, you know, I could hear the chord progression. I could hear the hello, hello part. And, and all, there were a bunch of other songs on there that were great. That was the first time I heard come as you are. And I could tell, even though the recording was horrible, that they were really, really tight. Later I found out after we did Nevermind, they rehearsed every day for six months. I mean, they wanted to get in the studio and be focused. They wanted to be a machine when they played and and they really did deliver when we tracked. So they were really
0: disciplined and Kurt was very disciplined when he was in the studio.
2: It wasn't a party. They they came in and, and meant business. You know, I tried to keep the sessions really focused. You know, I'd be in the studio for Probably twelve hours, but they were probably only in there about seven or eight hours. I wanted to make sure every time we recorded something, everything was set up, the drums were tuned, the guitars were all good, and then and just basically have them go for performance. So, the first day I met the Dave and and uh, and heard the new songs. I flew to L.A. and then I drove right to a rehearsal studio in North Hollywood. Walked into this big room and I saw that Kurt had a mic set up and they all had talkback mic set up. And there were some wedges on the floor. I noticed there weren't any mics on Dave's kit. And usually in a rehearsal, you put at least a mic on the kick drum and the snare, and you run it into the, the monitor so you can hear it, right? Yeah. And so I'm looking around and go, how's it going, guys? And Kurt was like, well, we want to play you some songs. I said, OK, let's do it. Play me a song. And they kicked into Teen Spirit, and it blew my mind how good it was. And it and Dave Grohl was playing the drums so hard, he didn't need microphones on them to put them into the wedges. Yeah. Normally, what I do is I have a little pad and I take notes when I first, you know, in pre-production, when I hear something and just sketch things. Oh, this could be tighter, maybe a different drum fill or add a harmony here, whatever, things like that. I didn't write any notes on that first take. I just sort of paced around the room watching them. And it was so incredibly powerful. And they finished the song and there was a few seconds of silence. And Kurt said, what do you think, Butch? And I said, play it again. And they played it again. The second time, I quick wrote all these notes down and uh, started to just really process what was going on how the interaction of how they were playing and, and the parts of the song and uh just notes for myself that i needed for production but man they sounded good and then they ran through everything that day so that's the first time i heard everything that was going to be on the record except the only track they didn't play was Polly because we included that from the version they did earlier at smart studios for the sub pop sessions but i heard all the other songs that day and man they were good kurt and the band were tight And uh, like I said, Kurt had really uh, grown as a songwriter. He just had an amazing melodic sensibility.
0: So did that mean they felt like that was the song, their most powerful song, that they were just the most excited about? Is that why they kicked into that first?
2: Probably. I mean, they didn't say that, but I'm guessing uh, that they knew that was probably going to be a focus track i never like to tell about that's going to be a hit single like they say this is a focus track that means it's either really hooky or really powerful or there's something about the song in particular for me that i want to pay extra special attention to in the recording so um, but i was impressed with all the songs that day i mean come as you are was great in bloom sounded way more powerful with dave on drums in the original version that they had done and so i was excited and I only scheduled, I think, three or four days of rehearsal. And even though Geffen had told me to rehearse them for two weeks, I knew that that was way too much rehearsal for them, that they would get impatient and get bored. Yeah. That's exactly what happened on the third day of rehearsal. Um, Gary Gersh, the A&R guy, was supposed to come by at like four in the afternoon and, and just hear a few songs and chat with him. And then he was late. He was late. The band had rehearsed and they were tired of playing. Kurt just sort of went off left and went out to find some food and Chris got a bottle of Jack Daniels and drank half a bottle of Jack Daniels. Then he wandered around the facility. There's all these other big rehearsal rooms and Lenny Kravitz was in the room next to us. Ah, nice. And Chris went into the, where the the main desk is and got on the PA and goes, Paging Lenny Kravitz, Paging Lenny Kravitz. I guess I'm going, Oh my God, is that Chris? I'm running down the hall. Chris, don't do that. Get out of there. That's funny. Uh, And anyway, by the time, gary showed up they were like ready to get out of there so i don't think he even heard any music that day but uh at that point i knew i just told him these guys are ready to record you know there's no point in in rehearsing anymore i want to get them in the studio and capture the energy that they have right now so we went into sound city like two days later and started tracking
0: okay great that's a perfect time to take a quick break we'll be right back in a few seconds
1: If you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to american com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Hey
0: everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ How do people get qualified?
2: We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup.
0: Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Okay, we are back with Butch Vig. So tell us about that, going into the studio, where you recorded it, um, what your approach was with the band, after hearing the songs raw like that live.
2: Well, we recorded the album at Sound City, which is in uh, the Valley in uh, Los Angeles. It's a very famous studio. Tons and tons of huge records were done there. Tom Petty, the Jackson 5, Fleetwood Mac. And they had this vintage Neve console that was custom made. They just had this incredible sound. That's part of the sound of that record as we recorded everything through the Neve. The other thing is the room was like a small gymnasium not very fancy looking but it had a great live sound to the ambience so it was kind of bulletproof in a way you could set the drums up and just put up a couple room mics and just had this great live sound so but it was really no frills and another reason we chose it the band wanted to go there it was really cheap i mean i think it was six or seven hundred bucks a day which is cheap you know because we a lot of the studios in in the big tracking rooms were 1500 or 2000 a day to get into a, a class a tracking room but uh Sound City was perfect. I think the No Frills was good because the production is really simple on the record. There's not a lot of trickery going on. It's basically recording a band live in a room. I mean, that was my focus. I wanted to capture them live and then made sure I had a great performance. Then we went back and overdubbed some extra guitars and some vocals and backing vocals and occasionally a few other things, percussion and things like that. But it's a really, really simple sounding record.
0: So how did, um, Kurt feel about overdubbing the vocals and the guitars?
2: Well, he didn't really like it when I had him do it for the smart sessions, you know, for those early sub pop recordings. But the first day we sat down, I said, I really want to capture the energy of you guys, but it needs to sound widescreen. It needs to be bigger than life. And, um, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course we want to do that. And Kirk kept saying, I want it to sound heavier than Black Sabbath. He kept referencing that. I go, okay, we'll make it sound heavier than Black Sabbath. I can't remember what the first track we did. It might have been Drain You. I, I know I, I the songs that I knew were key tracks. I always like to wait and record a few songs first. So I know I've got things dialed in just sonically and just vibe wise. So I, we didn't re- cut, cut Teen Spirit right off the bat or bl- In Bloom or come as you are, or lithium. I saved those for like three or four songs into the recording process. But I basically, you know, told them, you guys play like you have been playing every day in rehearsal. And I spent a lot of time getting the sound on the drums, getting the bass tweaked out. And then I had a couple different amps. Kurt had a Mesa Boogie amp, but I also brought in a Fender Bassman and a Vox AC30. And I think there's a small Marshall there. So we had some options for amplifiers. And um, depending on the song, I would, you know, change things up just sonically. Um, but once I was set, they would go in and they usually got a song in like one or two or three takes, you know, four at tops. And uh, and as soon as it was done, I would have Kurt go back and double track his main rhythm. And then there for their clean parts, I would go, let's go overdub that with a, with a separate sound. And so and initially he was he was totally up for that. And then as soon as he started doing it, he would get a little, oh, man, I don't want to do that again. You know, really, really. Really impatient,
1: hmm. but
2: I kept saying, "You know, we're, remember we're trying to make this sound larger than life, man. Let's let's go for it." And then, I, and then the first track we got to, when I wanted him to overdub extra vocals, he just said, uh, "I really don't feel like I should do that. It just feels fake." And I kept saying, "The Beatles double tracked all their vocals. Listen to John Lennon. Listen to Paul McCartney. All the vocals are double tracked." And and he and he sat there silent for about five seconds, and he went, "Okay." And then he and then he went in and he double tracked his vocal and, and pretty much every chorus on the album is double tracked and some yeah. of the verses are double tracked and, and uh, so Kurt under he understood that to produce a record and to make it sound larger than life you have to use some of the tools available in the studio too or, or some of the process of doing that and some of that's double tracking it's compression EQ. Uh, effects, you know, echo or chorus or reverb, whatever you decide to use. But he was wary of that because I think he was, now that he had signed to Geffen, he wanted to retain his punk authenticity. I had to be careful of how I got him to do the double tracking and any extra overdubs and make him feel comfortable that he wasn't going into a zone where the record would sound overproduced or, or wouldn't sound true to who they were as a band. So Mm -hmm. as I said earlier, I mean, the recording is really simple. It's basically them playing the song with some, some overdubs and some harmonies and vocals. And I really concentrated more on the performance and the sound of everything being recorded. And uh, that's really the sound of Nevermind.
0: Did he feel, and did the band feel from your perspective, pressure when they were in the studio about wanting to, be successful with this album but at the same time retaining that kind of that that underground
2: authenticity i didn't feel any pressure at all i mean they were having the time of their life i told the label i just kind of leave us alone you know so there weren't a lot of people coming into the studio l7 came by the studio for a day and hung out which is really fun they had a crazy food fight in the lounge with this barbecue uh, which was a terrible, terrible mess. And I felt really bad for the assistant engineer who had to clean it up that day. Yeah, But absolutely. it was funny. Um, I bad. I bet. I think toward the end of the sessions, uh, the, their management came by for half an hour and stopped in. And, and, and some of the people from Geffen popped in for a little bit. But basically, they just left me alone. And uh, so that was good. So it was basically myself and the band and the assistant engineer, and they're just recording.
0: So with with Teen Spirit... Do you recall any other specifics in terms of how you felt or guidance to Kurt as he sang the song or anything along those lines?
2: Well, I knew that Kurt would only do a lead vocal three or four times. So the first thing I would do is say, OK, I just want to get a vocal a test, get your headphone check and get a mic test. Of course, I would record it. So he yeah. thought it was just a warm up. So that was like take one. And then maybe I, I would that. get I'd, and I maybe get two or three more takes out of him and then he wouldn't sing anymore. Part of it's because he sang so hard and uh, his voice would get blown out after three or four takes. I kind of had a system down at that point for doing vocals, the type of compression I used in EQ and I used the, the microphone I used. So I knew once I got it set for him, anytime he wanted to sing, I was set. I didn't have to fiddle with it I I didn't want him to have to sit there and wait while I'm trying to get oh let's try this mic or let's try this compressor or whatever I I just it had to be bulletproof so anytime he was ready to go I was ready to record we would finish the song and then once I thought the rhythm track the the basic take was great we would go back and just start doing some of the overdubs and uh, and build the song quickly usually we would finish almost everything on that song in in a a day, you know, they'd have a takedown by the middle of the afternoon or late afternoon. And then I'd start doing the overdubs. And by the time they went home at eight or nine o'clock, the song was pretty much finished. So. That's amazing. Yeah. We had a couple songs where we added extra harmonies and some extra overdubs. And I think we spent maybe 12 or 13 days in studio a, which is the, the big room. And then we moved to the smaller room where we, we did most of Something in the Way, which has a much drier, uh, tighter sound to it. And then we did some, Kurt added some extra vocals there. And I know Dave did a lot of his harmonies there. But basically it was, most of the album was recorded in Studio A.
0: Did Teen Spirit break out to you before it was released? Did you and the band, did you feel like that was something different? Or it was a great song, but so were all these other songs, which they are, but... Was there something particularly magical about that one?
2: Well, it was an anthem. The song is so powerful just from the start as it kicks in. The, the amazing drum groove that Dave plays with uh, Kurt and Chris, the syncopation is just incredibly powerful. And uh, and Kurt's lyrics are so enigmatic. You don't know what he's saying, but you feel like he's singing about something that you can relate to. I mean, his lyrics are like that in a lot of the record. I think that's why Nevermind was so successful. Because he couldn't articulate the frustration or rage he was feeling, but you could hear it in the songs, and I think that's one of the reasons it touched so many people of that generation. I knew Teen Spirit was going to be a single, and and I also thought In Bloom and Lithium and Come As You Are; those were the four tracks that I thought I could all hear on rock radio or on college radio, as it was back in the day. Right, you know, but Teen Spirit was the one that jumped out as happenstance or chance. There was a band called the Sidewinders in studio. When we moved to Studio B, they, they took over Studio A and they were working with Neil Young's producer, uh, David Briggs, who Nirvana had met with and passed on they they didn't like him they said he's kind of a burnt out old hippie now I I met David Briggs I thought he was awesome he played me some live Neil Young stuff in the studio yeah. that just blew my mind yeah when Nirvana left and then David Briggs left the Sidewinders were still hanging out in studio a, and I said you guys want to hear some of their Nirvana stuff and I played him some of the rough mixes and it was the first time I saw anybody listen to Teen Spirit and they were like oh my god they were they're were looking at me going oh my god do you know what you've made you know how crazy cool this is and I was like well that's pretty good right and um, and then I played it for the band's management and they kind of tripped out and I played it for your other friends. I, I had a cassette I was playing in the car. I, I like to listen to rough mixes in the car. yeah. As I'm go- t- going to and from the studio, it's a, just a different perspective and I can usually get good notes if I need to tweak something or the levels are wrong. So I was driving around LA with, with the windows down, cranking the rough mix of Teen Spirit and people, would, you know, I'd be driving down the street and people would hear, hear me roll by. <laughs> it was kind of funny. I bet. So I knew there was something special about the song. And the funny thing is when we finished, it got mixed and mastered. I went back to uh Smart in Madison and I I I the pumpkins came up. They were doing some B-sides that they were trying to finish up. And it was over Fourth of July weekend. Duke from Garbage and I lived in this biplex or a a two-story thing right on the lake in Lake Monona. And so we had over about thirty musicians for a barbecue on the lake. Like Killdozer was there and basically a bunch of massive musicians along with the pumpkins and we're barbecuing in the backyard. And Billy said, put on the Nirvana sessions, the album. And so I put it on the boom box on the picnic table and hit play. And everybody stopped talking and crowded around the picnic table. And no one said a word for like 45 minutes as the record played through and it was done. Billy just looked at me and said, play it again. And so I said, okay. And I played it again. And then people were going started talking while I was playing, but I could see everyone listening to it intently Geffen must have just recently made some promo stuff because the next day I went early into the studio, like at 10 a.m. St- started getting coffee going and, and I checked the messages and there were about 10 messages on the my machine going, this is so and so from radio and oh my God, I've heard Nevermind and Teen Spirit. It's like, it's unbelievable. And people I didn't know were saying, Butch, congratulations, this is going to blow the lid off of rock and roll, or, l- leaving these messages. And I was like, wow, okay, so. I guess uh people are into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, you know, so I'm thinking, wow, maybe we'll sell, maybe we'll get a lot of college radio play and we'll sell 500,000 copies. Maybe we'll be as big as the Pixies. That that was sort of our goal, you know, with that record.
0: Kurt was very much influenced by the Pixies. Very and much so, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Did they feel like they had caught lightning in a bottle that it would become the in a, this rock and roll anthem classic that I think last I saw, it's reached over 1 billion streams on Spotify alone.
2: Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, no, none of us had any idea. And really what happened was MTV started playing the Teen Spirit video like 30 times a week. It was on like just constantly, you know, yeah. every day, every other hour you could see it on MTV. Yeah, And when that happens – you very quickly hit critical mass, like, you know, millions and millions of people see it. And then that happened all over the world, not just in the United States. And it caught all of us by surprise because then it happened so quickly. They went on this initial tour, we're playing some clubs, and then all of a sudden they were moving into bigger theaters. By the end of the year, they were playing arenas, you know, so it just blew up. I went to see him play at the Metro in Chicago, and we pulled up to the Metro, and there was a line around the block all the way there were like two thousand people online and the metro only holds about 800 people or a thousand people The show was sold out there are all these people trying to get in that's a good sign you know when when it's Sandy yeah. room only and there's another two thousand people waiting outside and uh i went backstage and, and hung out with a the band they're like holy cow can you guys believe this is happening and they're like wow it's crazy man and they like it well i at the time they were excited yeah they, they this is very early and this would have been in august when i saw yeah. them play i think at the metro They were just like, holy cow, this is crazy. And uh, when they started playing the first song, it was like Beatlemania. People were screaming and crying in the crowd. I was standing back by the soundboard going, holy cow, I have never seen this reaction for a punk rock band, you know? And I think that's when I realized that this was going to really fundamentally change all of our lives.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing how that song that you produced really defined a generation and continues to be just one of those lasting songs. Obviously I was one of those guys who immediately when I heard it the first time, it blew my mind and then saw the video and it blew my mind again, but that did transform lives, not only for, obviously for you and for the band, but for the the audience and for music in general, we're going to take another quick break. And then I want to get into some of the things that you're working on and a, a lightning round of, other all right cool let's do okay? it okay we'll be right back with butch big my number one album big shocker to me also folklore whoa are you ready to dive into all things taylor swift
2: good for a weekend is the ultimate podcast for any swifty
0: with new episodes dropping bi-monthly as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to
1: the latest rumors and news it's your one-stop shop for all things t-swift
2: we also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts.
0: Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I know. Of well, uh, it course. Like, it's a perfect album.
0: All right, we are back with Butch. So from a production standpoint, for being a producer, what projects do you have or are you – are you planning to have in the, you know, going into 2023? Anything that you want to discuss that you're working on? I've been busy this year. I finished the Silver Suns
2: record earlier in May, and then I went on tour with Garbage. We played uh, from May through August.
0: I saw you. I saw the show in San Diego. My family and I went out to see it. And what a great, what a great show. And Shirley was amazing. You know, she was incredible too. It just, it it completely captured everything about Garbage that it was just great to see you guys back on stage again.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're having a lot of fun playing live. Shirley is fantastic. I mean, she's the MVP of the band. She's so good and constantly surprises us every night.
0: She's a classic.
2: Yeah. So we finished in August and we had a couple writing sessions here in LA and we've got about 20-ish song jams that are we're starting to sort of, tinker with and see where they're going to go if they're going to turn into a song or just fall by the wayside but it's a couple that we're really excited about with the silver suns we did a record store day single called david lynch has a painting made of fly's eyes it just came out this last friday for a record store day we pressed up a couple thousand copies of the seven inch and uh, the band's called ssvu silver sun vigups Oh, that's so, funny. So it's me and the Silver Suns. And we recorded two songs, David, David Lynch and the, the B-side is Suzanne Chiani. And we consider ourselves an art rock band that comments on political and artistic culture or pop ah. culture. Pop culture, I think, is probably more uh, apropos. But it was really fun we we recorded the songs really fast one you know we did david lynch in about six hours and the next day we recorded suzanne chiani and then we sent him off to get mastered and they pressed it up and it's out
0: was david lynch actually on the on that song
2: no but he we, we sent it to him we have his blessing yeah so ssvu just came out last week in vinyl only but it will be going to digital formats streaming formats i think in two weeks so you'll be able to cool track it down listen to it but that was really fun and we we just shot a video i'm redoing my kitchen upstairs that we yeah. were supposed to do before covid and got postponed for two years so it's all destroyed and we shot a video for david lynch has a penny made of fly size up there and we it was crazy because we filmed it backwards so we had to i had to play the song flip the song over and we had to learn the song backwards and sync it backwards so it was kind of a a bit of a mind, a mind I, I melt.
0: bet That that reminds <laughs> me of, uh, of the scientist video from Coldplay, which was all backwards back then. And I, I can't even imagine playing backwards. Oh, it's really weird. Shoot. It was
2: really fun. And it's going to be a trippy video. We're trying to give a lot of the, the video a, a, an homage as much as we can to, uh, David Lynch, some of his films, like Mulholland drive and twin peaks and stuff. So that's out. And, um, I'm back in the studio with Garbage. I think it's February 1st. We hope to finish our new album by May. Ah, great. And then we're going back on tour, a possible couple different legs that we're doing through the summer into the fall. It's still sort of being worked out right now, but that's the plan so far for for early uh, 2023.
0: So you've done all these different things. Do you have like a bucket list item of something you have to do that, a goal of yours that you haven't done yet?
2: Not really. People always ask me, who would you like to work with? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never, I don't really think in those terms. There's a session that never happened that I was really bummed about when we were doing sound city, when Dave Grohl and I were bringing in different artists to collaborate for that documentary, we had a, a session booked with Neil Young. And mm-hmm. uh, he was supposed mm-hmm. to come in to uh, the studio and jam with Chris on bass and Dave Grohl. And I knew that if Neil played with them, yeah, he'd, say, this is pretty cool. Let's yeah. book some gigs. You know, it'd be like Crazy Horse on steroids. And then Neil had a book out at the time. Something happened in his schedule and he he couldn't he couldn't fly in to do the session. So I was we were all bummed, the engineer and I, we had everything set up, the amps and Dave and Chris are ready to jam with Neil Young. It would have been incredible. But it would have been it, epic. But it never happened. Maybe still someday, we'll see.
0: Okay, so I'm going to go into a lightning round a little bit with you, Butch. Okay? All, right. all right. So what are you most proud of of everything in your career?
2: There's a couple that stick out. Obviously, Nevermind is, uh, it changed my life profoundly and everyone closely associated with it. It changed their life. Siamese Dream, I worked on incredibly hard uh, because Billy and I pushed each other to sort of raise the sonic bar and what we wanted to make that record sound like. And uh, it was very challenging, but I think it still sounds really good. Um, The first Garbage record was uh, quite crazy because at that point, I would sort of grown tired of recording drums, bass, and guitars. And I got enamored with working with samplers. And a lot of that first garbage record is the music is everything's going through samplers and we're processing it and making loops and whatever. And so when that first record came out, it took a lot of people by surprise. And I think it was risky for me to make that record. Uh, everybody kept saying, why are you going back and starting a band? You're a successful producer. And if, if garbage flops, that's going to look bad on you, you know. Yeah, but I I just had faith in the songs and faith in the band. And faith in Shirley after we met her. I just felt there was something special about it. So cut to 25 years later, <laughs> we're making album number eight. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So I got to ask you about meeting
0: Shirley. Because, of course, rock and roll Laura has Maybe. it that her initial audition with you all was, um, she was talking about that a little bit, that she didn't feel like, oh, you know, that, that wasn't great.
2: Well, it's true. She came to Madison after Steve saw her band, Angelfish. They played her video once on 120 Minutes on Sunday night. And Steve yeah. taped it and brought the VHS in the studio goes, I think she's great. And we looked at it and go, wow, we really liked her singing and she looked cool. So we flew to London and met her and really liked her a lot and said, so you should come and come to Madison and, and we'll work on some songs. Now, what we should have done then in hindsight is sent her a cassette with three or four of the music things that we'd worked on, but we didn't. So when she flew (laughs) to Madison, she came into the studio. It wasn't even a studio. We had set up a temporary recording space in Steve's basement in, in Madison. And we had the core of some songs, like we had vow and stupid girl and queer and maybe a couple other ones. But we, so we'd call up a song and go, okay, sing something, you know, go for it and just roll it. And you. Know, so it's really hard to do if someone plays a song for you and they don't, you know, you can start ad libbing and making stuff up, but you can get really self-conscious really quick too. Like yeah. this is really bad. Yeah. And usually, at least for me, it's nice to live with something. And then you can start to get your head into what the track sounds like. And then you can maybe start forming some lyrics or some melodies or come up with some ideas. So we, you know, sort of inadvertently put way too much pressure and, um, She tried some things, but we could tell that she felt kind of tentative. And I think that she didn't feel that comfortable in what she was doing. But we still, we got along. Okay. And we said, well, this is cool. I think she was there for two or three days and she she flew back to Scotland. We listened to some of the stuff and there were a few little bits and pieces, you know, Duke and Steve like, well, this part's kind of cool. Her voice sounds cool here. And then she called us about a week later and said, I think I know what to do in these songs. And so we flew her back. And then she sang queer. And in the meantime, I had sang sort of a rough vocal of queer.
0: Yeah.
2: And I had I'd written some more lyrics to it. And I sang it like really distorted aggro. It sounded like Trent Reznor in early Nine Inch Nails. And Shirley heard it and sang it the exact opposite, like really mellow. Hey, boy, take a look at me. Yeah. And we're all like, whoa. It was way more intense that way. And uh, so she she got it. She, she kind of knew. I think she figured out. Uh, right away how to fit in to the sound of garbage and uh, and through the whole course of that first record she really kind of came on as a as a songwriter too yeah. And by the time we did version 2.0 she she took ownership of she realized I'm the lead singer in this band and I need to step up in terms of what I do on stage in terms of what I'm contributing writing lyrics and you know vision for the band. So as I said earlier, Shirley's the MVP. I can imagine
0: for anybody coming into that studio, let's face it, you were coming off this massive success and you were a well-known producer. That's pretty intimidating in and of itself.
2: To be honest, we were unsure how good the music was we were playing her, too. So we were sort of, you know, we have these songs that they might suck. We're playing playing them for Shirley and she's listening to them, trying to figure out what to do. I, it's really, it was terribly awkward. Like I, as a producer, I hate it when I get invited to some office, a publisher or producer or, or a label or a band and they go, Hey, we want you to listen to this song. You know, are you interested in working with this band or what do you think of the single or whatever? And then, so I sit there and listen and everybody sits in the room and looks at you listening to it. It's just incredibly awkward. I, <laughs> yes,
0: it I, is. I would rather if
2: they want me to listen to something, send it to me and I will listen to it at my own time by myself and get my head into it. And then I will call you back and we'll talk it, talk it Without it.
0: eyeballing each other at the time. Yeah. It's just incredibly
2: awkward. You know, it I've done it many is. times. So usually what happens is if we're bringing the label in or bringing people in, I put the playback up on the giant speakers and just crank it to stun volume. And then I leave the room. <laughs> right. You know?
0: So what's your favorite garbage song?
2: I sort of think of it in terms of playing live, you know, what resonates with me. I, I still love some of the quieter songs, like the trick is to keep breathing. I love playing queer. That's Push it. It's really fun to play live. We, I've never, the band never gets sick of playing that. I really like playing the song, even though our love is doomed, but it, there, there's too many. We have too many children now. <laughs> it's yeah. hard hard to pick a favorite.
0: Your last album from, I guess it was 2021. It's like vintage garbage. There's one song, I forget the name of it, but it sounds almost Depeche Mode-like. Do you know which one I'm talking about?
2: Oh, it might be, uh, I think it's probably Wicked Ways, which has like a shuffle groove. And actually we segue into a bit of personal Jesus in the middle. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Did we do that at San Diego?
0: You did that in San Diego. Yeah. So it's the same,
2: it's the same sort of rhythmic groove. And so we, during rehearsals, we decide, well, this would be cool. Let's Andy Fletcher died from Depeche Mode last year. And we're big, I'm a huge Depeche Mode fan. Violator's in like my top 20. Albums of all time, I love it so much. Completely, completely. So it was, it was fun to do that because it worked. You know, it was the same key and the same in uh, the same tempo. So we just drop it in. It's like the bridge of the song. We we switch into uh, personal Jesus. So which song of any song out there do you wish you would have produced? Well, man, there's thousands of genius songs and where the production is incredible. Off the top of my head, I would have to say the Verve's Bittersweet Symphony. Yeah, I walked down the aisle at my wedding to my wife, to that song. Ah. I love the song sonically, the way the strings sweep and uh, Richard F. Cross singing and his lyrics. It just, to me, it's, a, it's epic. It's very poignant and powerful. And if I had produced it, I would have gotten clearance on the publishing, <laughs> on, the, on the string sample, because yes. as anybody knows, they had to give the rights up to that and lost all 100% of the publishing on it which is a bummer. However, yes. a couple of years ago, Mick Jagger did the right thing and gave the publishing back to the band. So they finally own the publishing on it again. But it, yeah, it's I, an incredible song. And uh, it just whoever thought to put that, to blend that song together with those sweeping strings is uh, was genius.
0: Mick, it was the right thing to do.
2: <laughs>
0: You've done okay. You've
2: done okay. Yeah, man. Mick, you have done okay.
0: Yeah, he's done okay. Okay, so Butch, if you didn't become who you are, sitting in your studio in Silver Lake, and being a musician, producer, all of that. What do you think this young man from Madison, Wisconsin, where would you have gone in your life, do you think?
2: Well, I've always been a musician and loved sound and audio and recording. But I went to film school at UW-Madison, and I'm really into visuals. And art in general, and I think if I hadn't made it in music, I probably would have ended up in audiovisual, doing something, you know, ma- making videos or, or films or working for a TV station. Uh, hard to know exactly, but I, I do a lot of little video editing and stuff here. Yeah. And I like that process. And I I have, if you look in my studio out there, there's all sorts of photography and stuff that I've taken over the years that I have often. It's just really for my own personal use, but yeah, I like that process. Um, I, I got very involved with the SSVU video. David Lynch has a penny made of fly size. As I said, we shot it up in uh, my bombed out kitchen a couple of nights ago, but I drew out a whole storyboard and I did a little test video where I, yep. I, I performed backwards with a, with a fisheye lens and uh, to send to the band to get an idea and, I worked with the director and came. like I said, I came up with a whole storyboard and all the shots and everything. And uh, it was fun. I'm not going to edit it, though. I, I decided if I did, I would go crazy because it's really tricky trying to edit reverse footage because it's never perfectly in sync. So you have to uh, slide like sometimes frame by frame around to get it so it looks like it's actually playing back in real time, but it's backwards. And uh, so we, we there's an editor we're working with in uh, the UK who's going to edit it for us. Can't wait to see
0: that. That'll be very, very cool.
2: Yeah, hopefully it'll be out in in two or three weeks.
0: Listen, Butch, it's been great to have you. Thank you very much for joining. Love all the things you've been doing with Garbage. Can't wait to hear the new stuff that's coming out in 2023, too. So thanks, Butch.
2: Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye.
0: That was Butch Vig, legendary producer and garbage collector, sharing his story behind Nirvana's track, Smells Like Teen Spirit, one of the most iconic records of all time that changed the face of music when it blasted onto the scene in 1991. I'm your host, Peter Chadi. You can follow me on Twitter at P That's P as in Peter. C like cat, S like Sam, A like apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, Y like yellow, and at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song.